This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A demographic takeaway from this week's bombshell from former Mayor John Tory. And the right to repair, a consumer fight to be able to fix and modify the products we buy. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. One in 10 new drugs cleared by U.S. federal drug regulators in recent years did not achieve its main goals. This according to a new study. Researchers at Yale and Harvard found that of 210 new therapies approved by the FDA from 2018 to 2021, 21 drugs approved to treat cancer, Alzheimer's, and other diseases were based on studies that had one or more goals that were not achieved. For instance, some approvals are granted if trials show promising early results, but then turn out not to extend overall survival. The findings raise questions about whether the federal agency's drug approvals lack transparency about safety and effectiveness. The lead author says doctors and patients who don't have time to comb through the underlying medical studies often don't know about missed clinical goals. The fortunes of some of the billionaires minted at the height of the pandemic have crumbled just as quickly as they soared. Moderna's vaccine propelled scientist Stefan Bancel's net worth to $15 but he's since lost 75%. Eric Yuan watched his fortune hit $29 as Zoom became the world's go-to video conferencing tool. His fortune lost 84%. The men belong to an exclusive club of 58 billionaires whose wealth multiplied at an eye-popping pace thanks to changes brought about by COVID and cheap money, only to plummet even quicker. The Codex Sassoon, the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible, could fetch $50 million at auction this spring. It was written by a single Jewish scribe on 400 pages of parchment about 1,100 years ago, and it could well become the most expensive book or document ever sold when it goes on the auction block in May. Before then, the book is embarking on a worldwide tour that will include stops in London, Tel Aviv, and more. 89-year-old Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein confirmed she will not run for re-election. First elected in 1992, the oldest woman in the Senate will retire at the end of her current term next year. Adam Schiff and Katie Porter have already announced they'll be seeking her seat. Feinstein was a key part of the nation's first assault weapons ban and helped confirm the release of documents detailing the CIA's use of torture. But her approval among California voters has plummeted, with just 30% backing her performance in a poll last year. (laughs) 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The bombshell that led to the resignation of Toronto Mayor John Tory underscores some long-term trends affecting many in the Zoomer demographic. A lengthy marriage in trouble, a much younger woman, a relationship apparently born during a very intense and stressful time at work. I talked with family demographer Rachel Margolis of the University of Western Ontario. As a family demographer, we know that about a third of marriages in Canada end in divorce and that the average length of marriage is about 15 years. And so some marriages last very small amounts of time and other marriages like that of the mayor has lasted over over many decades. Um, and I think that we're often taken off guard when we see older adults uh, having marital problems and going through uh, what we call gray divorce or divorce at older ages. But um, this is not that uncommon to happen. And I think that there are a lot of really interesting social changes that are leading to, um, to baby boomers looking to change their relationships in older age. What are those phenomena? Well, one big thing is that there's a huge change in the social context of marriage and singlehood. You know, there's been a real big decline in the stigma of divorce and baby boomers really led the divorce revolution in the 1970s. They were the first generation to divorce at high numbers. And so they all know people who have been divorced and there's just not as much stigma around it. Uh, And another change in this social context is that it's much more acceptable socially to be unpartnered at any age now than it used to be. So people are making their decisions in a different kind of social situation. And then another change is that people are living longer and longer. Um, And this combined with really high expectations about the quality of a marriage that they should have lead to a lot of people reevaluating their marriages later in life. And then We also see that a lot of boomers today are not in their first marriages because many of them were divorced in the 70s or the 80s. And so a lot of these older adults are in what we call higher order marriages, like second or third marriages. And these marriages are associated with higher risks of divorce. So um, we know that boomers are not afraid of divorce and they're not afraid to leave a relationship if their expectations aren't met. Are there financial reasons for this? We really have seen increased financial independence of female baby boomers compared to previous generations. Boomers are the wealthiest generation ever to live. And so these are people who can really afford to split up into two households if they decide that they want to. I am conjecturing that uh, this is something that may have affected the mayor in his relationship, and that is... If you stop being interested in what your partner is doing or what your partner is interested in, what I could understand is extremely intense and very lengthy working during the pandemic. His wife mm-hmm. has said she's not that interested in politics, and, and mm-hmm. there he is with this person. And, you know, you see it with other couples. I would say as much as sex, that can be a real irritant. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, couples really need to feel like the other person respects and cares about what they're interested in. And so this is what we've seen over the last maybe four decades. It's really common for couples to split up after their kids leave home. And part of that is that they don't have a shared project anymore. Um, and so and another thing that uh, we noticed during COVID is that everyone was reevaluating what was important to them. And so if all of a sudden John Tory is dealing with a big disaster in Toronto that's taking up all of his energy and his wife is thinking about other things, then this can really lead to people not feeling connected. There are aspects to this, which I would see as an age-old cliche, a a guy who is deep into middle age, a very young woman, younger than some of his children. Yes. So when when marriages end and people start new relationships, it's not uncommon for men to be with women who are much younger than their first partner. And we see much bigger gaps in age of partners for second and third marriages than we do for first marriages. Generally, for first marriages, partners are only a couple of years apart with the man being a little bit older. Um, and, and this is something that we that we think of as being a typical midlife crisis kind of thing. Maybe in this case, it was more of a COVID crisis. But I think it's a little bit too early to know all the details. And we don't know what's going to happen to John Tory's marriage. I know uh, cases of, of some friends of mine who also, uh, not pandemic-related, worked in very intense kind of jobs and mm-hmm. left their first wives for someone they had been work- working with in the same profession. It's very common for people to work to meet at work these days. So I think that in the 80s and 90s, it was common for um, people to leave their spouses for someone they met at work if they were already married. But these days, we're seeing that more people, more new relationships are starting at work because that's where people spend so much time. Are there any lessons to be learned here on how to keep a long-standing relationship together? I think longstanding relationships have to do with spending time for each other and making time for each other, keeping mutual respect and having some sort of social contract, some sort of thing that keeps the family together, some sort of meaning, sense of meaning. And I think a lot of people questioned that during COVID. Everyone reevaluated their lives. It's not necessarily a terrible thing if an unhappy or a marriage that's not working ends. Uh, I think it's pretty amazing that people have the freedom to partner and repartner when they want to, um, as long as they've really given their first relationship a fair shot. Rachel Margolis, that was very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Rachel Margolis, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Western Ontario. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the latest fight for consumer rights, the right to repair. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. seems unfair. Many manufacturers force consumers to use only their proprietary services and components when they need to repair products they have paid good money for. The right to repair is the movement to change that. 
I reached Aaron Perzanowski, a professor of law at the University of Michigan. I think there's a growing sense of frustration among consumers who are fed up with dealing with restrictions on their ability to control the things that they buy. And I think repair is a pretty uh, visible example of the ways in which our degree of control has, has really been eroding over the last couple of decades. I think there are some real concerns about the way certain kinds of products are designed and built that make repair more difficult, right? When companies start gluing batteries into devices, knowing full well that the battery is often the first component to fail, that looks to me like a restriction that, um, you know, really interferes with, uh, with the consumer's ability to repair their product. Now, there might be good engineering explanations for that choice, but I think companies need to take into account the impact that their, their design choices have on repair. Which products, consumer products, would you say are the hardest to repair in in your home, like in terms of an appliance or something like that? There's a range. So, you know, on the extreme end, we have certain products, for example, uh, AirPods, right? Apple's, um, you know, uh, wireless headphones that are close to impossible to repair, just given the way they are designed and built. It's really tough to, to replace the batteries in those things without simply destroying the device. Um, but we see these kinds of restrictions, not only in terms of you know hardware design, but also in terms of the software uh, that our devices rely on. And so we see examples where uh, a device is really difficult to repair, not so much because of the way the components are put together, but because of these kinds of software restrictions that, that really um, stand as a hurdle to consumers doing it themselves or to independent repair providers. So it has a lot to do with intellectual property and uh, only this is this is when you come up against something where it says you have to take it to the authorized dealer, the authorized repair shop, whatever. Intellectual property law, I think, in this space really functions as another set of tools that manufacturers can rely on to make repair more difficult. They can control access to diagnostic information. They can control access to replacement parts and software tools that you might need in order to make a repair. And they can also sort of cut off access to components of the software code that that make a device work by relying on copyright law. And so that creates a a, a pretty significant impediment to repair in in a lot of instances. I remember a story about which which of the cars that were in Massachusetts, where you have the right to repair, uh, the company cut off the uh, the automatic starter or the remote starter because uh, they say it should be protected. So vehicles today are equipped with the ability to remotely send information from your vehicle back to the car maker or to the local dealer. And some of that information includes diagnostic information about the, the performance of your vehicle. And so Massachusetts uh, 
decided to update its right to repair law in the last couple of years to include this new way of accessing information. Uh, and rather than comply with that law, which would, would have required independent repair shops to get access to that, that uh, telematics information, some car companies uh, did simply decide to turn those systems off in the vehicles that they sell in Massachusetts because they claimed that they couldn't actually uh, comply with the new law. Um, that law is, is being litigated right now in federal court in Massachusetts, and so we haven't seen a, a, a full uh, rollout of those new provisions yet. There's been some effort to kind of level that playing field to make sure that you as the consumer get to actually make a choice. Do you want to go back to the dealer or do you have, you know, a local independent shop that you trust that maybe gives you a better deal that's more responsive to your requests? And I think that's a choice that every consumer ought to get uh, by virtue of purchasing a vehicle. That's not something that you should have to negotiate with the car maker in order to have those rights. I think that's implicit in your rights as, as an owner. So is this basically just about uh, those companies that have what they call the proprietary software just wanting to make more money at the expense of the consumer? I think there is a clear monetary incentive for companies to restrict and control repair. In some instances, when we're talking about vehicles, right, things we know that are going to be repaired, car makers and car dealers have a really strong incentive to induce you to come to them for those services. They make a lot of money through services. In other instances, the economic incentive is for a company to encourage you not to repair at all, but to replace with something new, right? That's the, that's the model in the smartphone space, for example. And so I think we have to take those economic incentives really seriously when we evaluate the claims that companies make to justify their restrictions on repair. They'll talk about the importance of privacy. They'll talk about the importance of security. And I agree that those are important considerations, but I think they're ones that ought to be up to the consumer to decide if they trust their vehicle data um, to the dealer or if they'd rather trust that data to an independent repair shop. Um, and so there are trade-offs involved in the right to repair, but I think we ought to empower consumers to make those choices for themselves rather than having companies uh, like, you know, Apple or John Deere or Tesla decide on the consumer's behalf um, what options are on the table for them and what options are not. Thanks so much for being with us. It was great to talk to you. That was Aaron Perzanowski, professor of law at the University of Michigan on the right to repair. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.